Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Today we are here with Dr. Dickerson. Dr. Aisha Dickerson is a Bloomberg Assistant Professor of American Health and Environmental Challenges in the Department of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins. As an environmental epidemiologist, Dr. Dickerson's primary research interests are in environmental risk factors for neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative disorders, such as autism spectrum disorder and dementia. Her research focuses on evaluating combined environmental and occupational exposures to metals and subsequent individual and transgenerational outcomes. She also investigates the influence of disparities in autism assessment and service provision, along with environmental injustice in underserved communities. Dr. Dickerson completed a year of postdoctoral training in the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and held a postdoc fellowship in the Departments of Epidemiology and Environmental Health at Harvard T. Chan School of Public Health. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration. The first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. This podcast is brought to you by My Myco Lab. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you gone from doctor to doctor, had lots of tests, tried many supplements, medications, vitamins, and still feel awful? You and many others like you could be suffering from exposure to molds and mycotoxins where you live or where you work. My MycoLab is the only blood test available that tests immune system reactivity to mycotoxins. Visit MyMycoLab.com to order your test today. Welcome, Dr. Dickerson. Thank you for joining our interview today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we were we were really, really interested in some of your work about the environmental pollutions affecting mental health and depression. Can you speak on your work and your observations and the connections between mental health and our environment? Uh, well, I primarily study environmental exposures across the life course and the risk of any damage to neurological tissue. So that includes mental health disorders, but also neurodegenerative disorders and neurodevelopmental disorders, uh, because for the most part, they all have very similar mechanisms. So whether that be the immune response to a pollutant or uh, epigenetic changes, there are a variety of different pathways to neurologic damage. And so that's why as an environmental epidemiologist, I can't truly limit the exposures that I look into because a lot of exposures are co-occurring, but it's also difficult for me to just limit the outcomes that I investigate. That makes sense if it's affecting multiple systems like neuroimmunity, neurological, neuropsychiatric. What type of damage in these systems are you seeing across the board in relation to environmental pollution? 
So with any pollutant, again, there could be an immune response. So similar to just having allergies, but a little uh, more severe, when the body's reacting to an exposure, sometimes it will attack healthy cells, including healthy neurons. And so when it attacks those neurons, uh, it could cause cellular death. And so that causes neurodegeneration. Um, there could also be changes in hormone levels, especially with exposures to endocrine disrupting chemicals. And when you have uh, changes in hormone levels that can not only change your mood, but it can later impact your cognitive function um, in later life. Do you have a list of like hot bucket toxins of these ones are the most damaging for this reason? Every toxin is dangerous at a certain level. There are some that are more dangerous than others. So I tend to stick to heavy metals because there is no level of lead exposure that is considered healthy. And so even the smallest amount of lead exposure, whether it be an acute exposure over a day or whether it be small exposures over a long period of time, the issue with heavy metals is that they can store in the body. So uh, lead in particular can store up in the bone. And then when a woman is pregnant during uh, the third trimester for pregnancy, bone can quickly metabolize and then those toxicants can be released to the fetus. Additionally, when you get older and bone starts to break down, then those toxicants can remobilize into the bloodstream and you become re-exposed to something that you may have been exposed to decades ago. So heavy metals are incredibly dangerous, especially since not only do they store in the body, but they tend to be persistent within the environment. So whereas some things will break down, metals can, can stay for, again, decades. That's very interesting. Have you looked into aluminum at all and the effects on the brain? Do you have any insight on that? So I've worked with a group that did investigate uh, aluminum and impacts on autism spectrum disorder, though we did not see much there. We also haven't seen much with ALS or dementia at the moment, but I know that people are interested in the impacts of aluminum because it's something that we are generally exposed to on a regular, very, very regular basis. Um, some people cook on top of aluminum, and it's just always around us. So I know that it's been a toxicant of interest for many people, but the thing with aluminum is that it, it doesn't really break down as rapidly as you would expect some other metals to break down, um, but we haven't seen much with aluminum so far. So there's not maybe a very strong correlation with autism and aluminum, but have you seen strong correlations with other heavy metals? in autism? Uh, yeah, so we've seen, again, going back to lead, I always tell people when you're looking for something that might be hazardous, lead is usually my first go-to. And so we've looked at mixed, ex uh, mixed metal exposures uh, and autism, and the one that always pops out on the top is, is lead. And I think people expect to see things like mercury, but we really haven't seen much with mercury, or for that matter, uh, manganese, or, uh, or arsenic, but lead more so than anything has shown an adverse impact on neural development. Has the aluminum in vaccines shown any impact on neurodevelopment? We have not seen any associations between aluminum content in vaccine and neural development at this point. And so I know that people always see vaccines uh, as a concerning exposure, but it's important to note that when 
people are looking for a neurodevelopmental disorders is often around 18 months of age. And so that's when you would notice that a child isn't babbling or they, they aren't really forming certain words that you would expect a child to have at 18 months of age. And so a lot of parents recognize a neurodevelopmental outcome at 18 months of age, but the truth is a lot of those children had that outcome several years before that, but the parent may not have recognized it because they weren't looking for verbal signs of, of development. So 18 months is usually when, when children get a lot of vaccines. And so I think that's why people tend to try to correlate vaccinations with neurodevelopmental outcomes, primarily just because of the exposure being around the same time. I'm curious to know the sources of lead, like where, where hands. Yeah, I just okay. I want to know exactly where people are being exposed. But isn't lead lead paint is has been banned, right? What sources of lead are people being exposed to still? I mean, we know in older buildings there might still be some lead paint on the walls, but it's not it's not actively used. So, what are some of the main sources of exposure that you're seeing for lead? That's a great question. So lead paint, even though we don't paint houses with lead paint anymore, if a child lives in an older home uh, with lead-based paint, if that lead paint hasn't properly uh, or had there hasn't been proper lead remediation, then that can uh, cause an issue, especially in lower income communities where the solution is to just keep painting over a wall with lead-based paint and when it chips, the child eats the, the paint chips and things like that. It's more of a problem in lower income communities, one, because of lead-based paint, but also because of poor water quality just from the municipal piping in those areas. And then there, um, there's also air-based air exposure. So the study that I was referring to earlier was primarily based on air pollution. So we looked at air pollution exposures as measured by the Environmental Protection Agency with the mixed metals. And so the one that, again, stuck out was lead. But there's so many different sources of lead exposure, and it, it tends to be a bigger issue in lower-income communities where there are just a lot of co-occurring multi-point sources of lead exposure. It seems like a lot of the environmental exposures do disproportionately affect poorer people who might not be aware that something is dangerous or might not have the means to fix it properly. I wanted to bring Eric in and see if he has questions for you because Eric is also very interested in particles that stay in the body and continue to cause health problems. And I think that he'll have some very interesting questions for you that might open the discussion up a little bit. Mostly, I was curious about the effects of nanoparticles, the um, unique quality of surface energy allowing a nanoparticle to penetrate the lungs defenses and get into the blood and brain due to their peculiar size to surface area uh, ratio that gives them uh, so much surface energy that they behave differently than normal uh, molecules. So as the question there, are nanoparticles more dangerous or more hazardous than say general PM10 or PM2.5? Absolutely. I think they can be. Every exposure has a, has a certain route and a certain mechanism. 
And so whereas some particulates may just cause inflammation, others, as you said, are small enough to cross the olfactory glands and straight through to the brain and, and across the blood-brain barrier. So uh, yeah, they could definitely have a greater impact on neurological function for sure. And that could be, again, at the acute level. So I always, when I'm talking to students, I say, yeah, we, we generally try to look at long-term exposures, but if you think about, again, nanoparticles is a good example. If you were to inhale, say a solvent, um, you immediately experience dizziness. Like you don't have to wait 10, 15 years to see an impact. You would immediately experience some acute reaction to that. So, um, but each pollutant, whether it be particular or otherwise, has a particular root and mechanism um, of exposure. Some people are concerned that um, these pollutants, these chemicals are primarily mast cell reaction, immunoglobulins. And are you seeing other types of damage with these metals that could fool people into focusing on uh, perhaps the wrong culprit? I mean, it's hard to tease out when you're looking at environmental exposures, like what is the primary culprit? Because somebody who's exposed to one thing is also going to be exposed to several other things. So yeah, I think that there is the potential to focus your attention on the wrong exposure or on the wrong mechanism because there's just a lot going on at the same time. And so um, that's why I'm big on, in my research, looking at multi-point exposures and co-exposures and, and, uh, and co-occurring factors, not just environmental uh, exposures, not just air pollution, but also water quality, but in addition to that, the impact of psychosocial stressors. So when you're thinking about the immune response, psychosocial stressors can also increase an immune response. And they, they leave your body open to attack from, from environmental exposure. So I try to look at things in combination, whereas I think over the last few decades, epidemiologists have tended to look at one exposure, but we're, uh, we're moving away from that now to try to, to gain a better insight on mechanisms behind environmental exposures and psychosocial stresses. Years ago, there was a lot of fuss over the dangers of copying, copying machines, the uh, ink and toner, the uh, particulates and the chemicals in copy machines, and how teachers and people who did a lot of paperwork might be exposed to uh, high levels of these particles. Have you seen any correlation there? I have not looked at copy machines as a whole, but I think that an exposure from a copy machine would probably be negligible compared to the other exposures that a teacher would experience in a school. When I think about teachers' exposures in the school, it's often more so infectious exposures that teachers experience that would cause an immune response later on. So, um, but I, I've never considered that. That's something interesting though. It's definitely something uh, to look into for future research. Yeah, I was thinking that uh, there's a possibility that the nanoparticles from uh, ink were combining with the toner and actually penetrating the uh, lungs in a more dangerous way by combining the chemical plus, because there was a possibility that the chemical might be adhering to the nanoparticle and the nanoparticle was being a, a vector, a transport mechanism, 
which would allow greater penetration of these chemicals into the brain. Well, that's an interesting theory, but it's definitely not something that I have thought about. Uh, but, you know, again, it's something that I could think about for the future. Yeah, we were getting bombarded with silver iodide cloud seeding years ago. I live up at Lake Tahoe, and uh, the ski resorts were desperate for snow, and they decided to embark on a really ambitious program of dusting every cloud that came our way with massive amounts of silver iodide. And we were very concerned about this because no environmental impact report was done, and people really didn't know the long-term effects of these highly toxic silver particles. I looked in the uh, patent for silver iodide, and the inventors said that a few applications didn't result in any alterations in the soil, or there were no known health effects. But given their toxicity, that if you kept using it, that there would certainly be effects at some point. And yet people um, doing this uh, cloud seeding used the lack of studies as a reason to say that you have no proof that there's any damage, even though they would readily admit that if you put silver iodide in a goldfish bowl, it will kill the goldfish. So have you uh, looked into silver particles? Uh, I haven't gotten into looking into silver particles yet, but that's a common occurrence with a lot of environmental exposures. I mean, you can look at the list of of chemicals that the EPA deems as safe and decades later they'll take those things off that list to say that they're not safe because in the moment when you're using it everything seems fine. Think about asbestos. Everybody thought asbestos was the best thing since sliced bread, right? And now we know that it can cause lung cancer. Same with lead-based paint. They thought, oh, this paint lasts forever. The sunshine doesn't fade it. It's awesome. Oh, years later we find out that it causes damage. And so I, that's been an, an ongoing thing uh, with chemicals. And now thinking about, um, about PCBs and our poly, uh, polychlorinated biphenyls, um, those BPA, all of those things, we, in the beginning, when they were first introduced to society, it's like, these are great. And now we know that they're not. Same thing with pesticides. We're, we're seeing not just adverse impacts on the individual later in life, but now we're starting to see transgenerational impacts, not just in the child of someone who was exposed, but in the grandchild of someone who was exposed. So that's a common occurrence with chemicals is that it's introduced. Everybody thinks it's great. Even going back to lead, people would put lead in cosmetics, like your lipstick is brighter than ever. It'll last forever because we put lead in it. But you just don't know what it does until, until you know. You just don't know what you know until you know it. Uh, we were talking with a uh, nanoparticle researcher, Dr. Antonietta Gotti, and she brought up that same point with cerium uh, that's being used in catalytic converters. That somehow they decided that this would be a terrific thing to use in catalytic converters when nobody really knows the long-term effect of spewing all this into the air. We uh, certainly know that there's a higher incidence of cardiopulmonary disease and autism close to roads, busy intersections, places where there's a lot of traffic. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, so far as I know, this is another instance of, it's like, oh, this is great, we'll use this. And maybe uh, someday if enough people will complain about it, then we'll start to look for long-term health effects. 
Right. So, I mean, in the case of chemicals that a community might be concerned about, the best option when there is a concern about something is to file a, not necessarily a complaint, but a, a notice of concern with the Environmental Protection Agency. So, uh, IRIS, what does IRIS stand for? Uh, I can't remember right now. But with the EPA, if there's something that you're concerned about, you can ask them to do an analysis or a risk-benefit analysis for human health. But as you mentioned earlier, the only issue with that is that they base it on research. If there's not enough research on that specific chemical, then it's difficult to for them to determine if, if the chemical is hazardous. Because they're basing it all on research, animal research and human research, but research as a whole. So if there is no research, it does make it kind of difficult. Yeah, I find it absolutely impossible to get the ball rolling if there isn't any prior work on the subject. Mm -hmm. Like years ago when the uh, toxic mold started to make itself apparent, there was no research, there was nothing in the literature, and everybody that we approached cited the lack of research as a reason for them to take no interest in it. I talked about the uh, silver iodide. Well, at the time that we were being dusted with these massive amounts of silver iodide, we did notice some alterations in our relationship with microbes. Some microbial colonies were affecting people much more strongly than they had in the past. People were pointing at certain areas in sick buildings saying, well, this, this wall is making me sick, or the corner of this room is really, really toxic. And when the EPA and CDC epidemiologists came to look at it. They said, well, I, I see there's this black mold there, but you have no proof. There's nothing in the literature. As far as we know, mold is just an allergy. So there again, we, we couldn't really process any requests because it didn't strike them as being anything noteworthy and there was nothing in their literature to prove it. Well, yeah, that's why I always try to push community-engaged research so whenever I'm working, uh, we're not, even when I'm just trying to come up with ideas of what to do, it's always important to me to ask the people in the community, what's important to you? What have you noticed? What do you think I should be looking into? Because often there are things that people have already thought about. They just don't know what resources to use to get funding to do that research. And I mean, to me, if it's something that someone hasn't done research on before, that is a reason to call it innovative. You call it innovative research. Nobody's ever done this before. We need to look at it. But so it's, it's just about building um, collaborations to do that kind of stuff. Across the country, about the same time, my outbreak, my phenomenon was starting to manifest with this uh, toxic mold. There were other, other places suffering a, a really similar situation one of them was on Lake Erie, the um, Cleveland Sudden Infant Death Syndrome incident investigated by doctors Dor Dearborn and CDC epidemiologist Ruth Etzel. And here again, it was a, the same exact situation where these infants were suffering from pulmonary hemorrhage, generally in low-income housing, but not necessarily. It seemed to be um, confined to a specific area adjacent to Lake Erie, which is noted for algal blooms. Mm -hmm. And an exhaustive search didn't really find any culprit until they narrowed it down to all the houses appeared to have 
this toxic mold. And it was the same situation, this black mold that people were pointing at. It was associated with these types of effects, but there was nothing in the literature. And Ruth Etzel finally located some papers in the veterinary literature. There was nothing on human health effects, but in the veterinary literature, it was found that these molds are extremely toxic when ingested, but not really known to be an inhalation hazard. And it seemed to me that metals being liberated by microbial activity might be combining with this toxic mold in such a way to serve as a, a vector, a transport system, to make it an inhalation hazard. And this, the reason we hadn't seen this before is because this type of atmospheric pollution, these metals, these nanoparticles that are drifting around in the wind, weren't really at the, the levels previously that we might have hit some kind of critical point where these metals are combining with microbes in such a way as to form a, a new combination, a new pathogenesis. And it's just a crazy idea, of course, but the association seems to be there. And there's certainly a lot of people pointing at it now. But as you've pointed out, we can't really initiate research into this because there's nothing in the literature that tells them this is something they ought to look into. Well, I think it's important for you to tell somebody that it's something that they ought to look into, and then they create the literature. Yeah, that's that, an that's idea. Well, <laughs> that's why we have exposing mold, and we, <laughs> us as patients and 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 you know healthcare providers and healthcare workers in our own way, we decided to launch exposing mold because we felt like there's a missing link here. You know, and we want to bring that. We, we want to find people like you, Dr. Dickerson, that has a very um, unique skill set and expertise in environmental studies. And because I just feel like at the end of the day, we're missing such a huge component to health. You go to your doctor and you fill out your questionnaire and it's, do you have heart disease? Is it running your family? Do you have diabetes? Nothing is asking do you live in an old home? Have you been exposed to mold? Um, or do you live in a crowded, you know, intersection? You know, it, it, there's none of that. None of that exists at all. I really wanted to point out to your paper that you wrote, Environmental Exposures and its Link to Adult Depression, Anxiety, and Suicide. I mean, basically what you call out in, in your first sentence of the paper is, Despite a call for better understanding of the role of environmental pollutant influences on mental health and the tremendous public health burden of mental health, this issue receives far less attention than many other effects of pollutants. And I want to thank you for pointing that out because I feel like when we think about mental health issues or autism or whatever, you know, we always want to blame genetics or you know, there's something wrong with you psychosomatically, you know, you're having too much stress and no one's really making that link. Look at your environment. What is going on? What are you being exposed to that actually could be triggering these different psychosomatic issues or, or triggering like heavy metal exposures and, and autism? I just wanted to maybe touch a little bit on your paper that you did and just kind of tell us a little bit more of your findings in terms of mental health and environmental exposures. Um, so that paper in particular was based on a collection and it took years. It took literally years <laughs> to organize and go through all of the papers that were on environmental exposures 
and mental health. But so this is, it was actually one of those rare occurrences where there was literature. But a lot of the literature was conflicting. So we tried to compile all of that and compare and contrast what has been said. So uh, similar to what you said with mental health, people tend to blame it on something else. Not only do they say, okay, it's genetics or it's your stress level, but oftentimes they think, okay, well, if it's something that can be easily fixed, and I put that in air quotes, like we give you an antidepressant or some anxiety medication, then we don't really have to worry about how you got it. They go for a treatment option more so than the public health option. And so that's the biggest thing about public health is that we're trying to prevent disease rather than, than trying to, to fix it. But yeah, so this was just a, a different angle on how people try to determine uh, what causes mental health. And what we saw in that collection of literature was that there was overwhelming evidence that there is some kind of an association between air pollution, uh, more so than the other exposures, but air pollution and mental health. Now, we don't know if that is, again, an immune response, or is it just that the people exposed to air pollution are exposed to, they live in the inner city, and so they're also exposed to a bunch of noise or they also come from, again, a lower income community. We, we weren't able to determine if it was a collection of things, but what the research shows is that air pollution as a whole tends to be associated with increased risk of mental health disorders. Now, teasing out how that happens is a, another research project. <laughs> Yeah, I hope that's something that you work on in the future, because I mean, when you look at and just the, the impacts that you had pointed out in your paper, you know, depression, anxiety, being the two most prominent mental health conditions worldwide, you know, suicide is another big issue, the costs um, that, you know, employers take on because of these issues, you had listed in, in 2000, it was measured to be $83 billion in lost workplace productivity. Uh, you know, if, if you're looking around, the cities are ever expanding. And uh, when the population grows and things expand, that means we're going to make room for more pollution. So I think this is just definitely something that the WHO is actually taking notice of and, and saying that air pollution is much worse for our health than we originally thought. Um, right. a, recent, a recent BBC news article. And so we have to come up with some ideas on how to figure out how to reduce this or else we're kind of in a danger zone here. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, I, that's actually just my opinion. It's probably not true. I think that people are more aware of the hazards of air pollution, but then that's probably not, the, that's probably just the people in my circle. <laughs> I'm sure there are people outside of my circle who are like, air pollution, what air pollution? It's fine. The issue with trying to tackle air pollution, unfortunately, is that the ability to do it effectively changes drastically with the political climate. And so, you know, we know a few years ago, the politicians tried to destroy the Environmental Protection Agency, just tried to wipe it out. And now with the new administration, we're building it back up. We're putting more emphasis on climate change and air pollution. But who's to say that years from now, somebody's not going to come back and try to knock it out again. So it's just, it's, it's a difficult tug of war that's an ongoing um, problem. But I will say that 
because of the new administration and the funds that they've been pump, pumping into environmental research, there are a lot of projects that are ongoing now. And I think a lot of people, especially folks like me, who saw what happened a few years ago are trying to pump out as much research as possible while we have the ability to do so before they take it from us again. And so the National Institutes of Health has started to put a lot of money into investigating environmental exposures, especially through, it's called the Environmental Influences for Child Health Outcomes or the ECHO Consortium, which is a collection of uh, ongoing studies that collect data over time so prior to a woman's pregnancy, during her pregnancy, after infancy, and all the way up through adolescence, they've been collecting biological samples as well as information on residential locations so that you can try to estimate how much air pollution someone was exposed to, the age of their home, uh, their water quality, all of those things have been being tested over several years now. We're hoping to use that collection of data to look into a variety of outcomes, including uh, there are people right now looking into mental health, including depression and, uh, and anxiety uh, in adolescence. So for the children that are old enough that we have uh, information on that. So it's something that's happening. And there hasn't been much published on it yet, but it is something that I can say that I know people are actively working on. Wow, fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, autism, because if people are looking at the numbers now from where they were a couple years ago, it's just like every child, it's like one in 60 is now being born with autism, or I, I'm sure that number is different now, probably a little bit less. It does, it changes. It does change periodically. But what I do notice more than anything is that just thinking back on when I was in school, Nobody really knew what autism was. I always tell the story of the first time I met, uh, this is when I was an undergrad, I met a little girl with autism. I was doing a, the AmeriCorps program, which is like a domestic peace corps. And my placement was working with families of children with autism. So I met with the mother. She said her child had autism. Again, I had never heard of it. So I was thinking, she said her child was autistic. That was what she said. And I thought, well, what's wrong with being artistic? Like I had never even heard the word autistic. So that didn't register in my brain at all. So that's how little I knew about autism. And similarly, a lot of other people didn't know about it either. And so, you know, that years ago, a child would get diagnosis of an intellectual disability or they'd just be placed in in um, special education or in some cases placed into a state-funded home never to be seen again. And so that's one of the reasons that the autism numbers have been low in previous decades. But now that people are more familiar with autism, that is more mainstream, something that you can see on TV, like the, the new season of uh, Love on the Spectrum just started this week. Have you ever heard of that TV show before? <laughs> It's all about people with autism going on dates and things like that. So it's more mainstream. People are able to see it in real time. So they're more familiar with what the symptoms look like. And, and so that kind of aids in receiving a diagnosis is that people are able to recognize what autism looks like. So what you're saying is autism used to be a thing, but we, no one really knew about it. But now it's people know more about it. Right. Yes, but, so it may very well really be on on um, on an incline, but until we can try to to 
to normalize what an autism diagnosis looks like over several decades so that there's no confusion about if it's until I say until a black child can receive an autism diagnosis instead of an ADHD diagnosis, which is what often occurs, until we can all make this a central flat line where it's easily recognized in all cultures using culturally competent assessments, then we can't really determine if there's a true increase or not. Got it. In terms of autism, in terms of the studies and the research that are out there, is there an association, like an exposure association with heavy metals or pesticides or, or anything like that? With autism in particular? Uh, yeah, so there have been some studies that, again, suggest associations between, lots of studies actually, showing associations between air pollution and autism. So not a particular uh, air pollutant species, not, well, with my studies have shown air lead exposure and autism, but in general, air pollution as a whole has been associated with autism, whether that be through proximity to industrial facilities or living close to a high traffic freeway or even using air monitors, uh, home-based air monitors. There have been consistent uh, associations between air pollution and, and autism, but Again, there would be multiple sources of, of exposure, so it's hard to pinpoint which one is the, the biggest impacting exposure. Fantastic. And have you done or seen any studies where you've made those associations with a child that's been diagnosed with autism? Say they live in a busy city street and they're being exposed you know, through the air. Have you made recommendations for that family to maybe leave for some time? And have you seen any spontaneous recoveries when children were taken out of a, an exposure situation? So it's hard, it's difficult to determine a causation with air pollution. And so we're still trying to get to the point of saying this causes that before we can make a, a recommendation at an individual level, I tend to try to make my recommendations at a policy level so that it impacts an entire community more so than one individual. Because, I mean, not everybody has the resources to just get up and move to a different neighborhood. And so to me, it's more important to try to reduce air pollutant exposures to an entire neighborhood. Now, it's harder to do that once a pollutant source is already in a neighborhood like a, a steel mill or something, once it's there, then it's kind of hard to get rid of it. So I work with communities to teach them how to advocate for themselves so that when there's a city council meeting and they're saying, we're going to build this waste incinerator in the neighborhood, they know right then we need to keep them from building this incinerator rather than trying to get the incinerator to go away after they expose us for 20, 30 years. Absolutely. Are you finding numbers higher in lower socioeconomic status areas? Numbers, I mean, like higher autism numbers? Autism rates? Yeah. No. So that's another issue is that children from higher income communities tend to be assessed earlier. The thing with getting an autism diagnosis typically takes a, um, a team of doctors, which means it takes a lot of doctor's visits 
And so lower income families are less likely to be able to leave work uh, to, to do an assessment, especially to leave work multiple times to see a neurologist and then a, a pediatrician and, uh, and a specialized neurologist. Like it just takes a lot of visits. And so what I've seen, uh, even in my own research, is that children from lower income communities are more likely to uh, be ascertained during school because they're in school all the time and, and teachers are definitely people who can recognize what would be considered typical to development versus atypical development. And so we, we tend to see lower rates of autism in lower income communities, generally because they can't get an official diagnosis and also because the parents are not familiar with what to look for. I mean, it's not just low income. There are a lot of other barriers to getting uh, a good assessment and that's often language barriers and income and again what's considered typical development for one culture versus another absolutely i um in college i took an environmental ethics class and was extremely saddened by what happens in this country in terms of industry and it seems like industry selectively chooses lower socioeconomic areas to set up shop because they know those people do not have the funds or the time or the energy to put towards act, you know, I guess trying not to have that in their neighborhood. If, if uh, <laughs> Exxon came and set up shop in a, a very rich suburban neighborhood, they would nix that right away. Right. right immediately. So, <laughs> it's, it's, it's sad to see that. And, um, I want to know, are there any protections for these people that if someone does come into their neighborhood and say, we want to set up shop and do this and whatever, you know, we know it's going to pollute at some capacity. What can they do to advocate for themselves? That's a great question. So a lot of times when I talk to people, they say, well, I tried to contact EPA and that's too far up. You shouldn't start that far up. You need to start at the community level. You're city council members are the ones who stop that stuff from happening. So it's important to make sure that you elect the right local politicians. And I think a lot of people, you know, they only go and vote every four years. That's, you need to vote during these general elections. Those are the things that matter because those are the people that keep from coming into your neighborhood. They keep, they, they decline the the, uh, what is it called, the permit for building. They handle all of that stuff. And so that's where you need to start is at the community level. The other issue with that though, is that a lot of those community level politicians are not paid well. And so they have the opportunity to, um, to be persuaded by someone padding their pockets, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's a very unfortunate thing, you know, and, and thank you for providing information on what one can do. Now, I wanted to switch gears and I wanted to talk about your COVID study. You had done some associations with COVID and um, exposures. The Imperial College of London researchers just recently found evidence people living in polluted areas may have an increased risk of catching COVID. We understand COVID is a virus, but however, when you're in a polluted location, it definitely can increase your chances. Can you maybe explain why that that may happen? 
So it could potentially be the impact on the immune system. If you have a, weak immune, a weakened immune system, that makes it easier to catch uh, any virus. But it also could just be that living in a polluted area makes that person more symptomatic. And one of the things that I can say is it's not good, but one of the, one of the benefits of having more information about COVID in the community is that people understand now the difference between symptomatic and asymptomatic. Years ago, I would say those words and nobody would know what I was talking about. Years ago, people didn't know what an epidemiologist was, but now with COVID, people know what epidemiologists are. But because you live in a polluted area and you might already have breathing uh, problems because of the pollution, if you were to experience any minor change in your ability to breathe, it, it presents much more drastically because you have these co-occurring conditions, usually asthma and upper respiratory problem. And so uh, COVID symptoms where I, I might experience a small cough because I generally live in a, an area with nice clean air and because I'm generally healthy, if I was already only moderately healthy and I already had respiratory issues, a minor, what would have been minor to me would become uh, much more drastic to someone who already has those co-occurring conditions. So just the exposures basically would exasperate the situation. Exactly, yes. Okay. And we've seen that with, with just a lot of, they said that right off the top, anybody who has co-occurring conditions, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, those people are not only at greater risk of, they say contracting COVID, but I still think it's more likely that they're at greater risk of presenting with COVID symptoms, but they're definitely at greater risk of dying due to COVID because they have those co-occurring conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think what's important to try to figure out is where is it not contaminated? <laughs> where, <laughs> like what, what tools can people use to maybe find a place that has limited impact of contamination? You know, like what, what priority is best to follow in terms of ranking the impact of the various types of contamination, I would have to say. Well, I always tell people there's a, a fabulous free resource through the EPA called EJ Screen. And so if you go to EJ Screen, you can look at your neighborhood and you can see what areas have either waste incinerators, what areas have higher pollution sources, what areas have, um, have what they call lead and copper contaminant violations. All of those things are on EJ Screen. Thing, you just go into that website, you can type in your zip code and you see what's going on in your zip code. You can zoom out or you can zoom in or you can look at a different city and all of that stuff, you just point and click, point and click. And it makes a nice little map so you can see what's going on all over the United States. Is that what you use to find your, your place of residence? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I actually, I used to live uh, in the city when I moved here, and I didn't move because of the air pollution, I moved because the people in the city were always out and about and they don't sleep and I needed quiet. So I moved primarily for the noise level. It wasn't the air pollution, I moved for noise pollution. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, cities are always really loud. We lived in San Francisco and it's just, 
it's always ongoing, you know, there's always someone doing something <laughs> at right. all hours of the night. I totally get it. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's also a really good um, environmental working group has actually an interactive map as well. I wanted to add that onto your EJ screen. Um, thank you for that. And uh, they do post information like on toxic algae blooms as well. I don't know um, if EJ screen does that as well. I don't think they do toxic algae blooms, but would you tell me the name of that source again? Because I was having a conversation with somebody who wanted to look into toxic algae blooms, and my response was, I don't even know where to find that information. Yeah, I'm going to send it right now in the chat, okay. and then you can check it out. It's pretty cool. They, they even do, like, um, states where there's high nitrates in the, in the water, any watershed issues, any bacterial contamination in water like any chloroform bacteria um so i think it's just an it's just an extra layer you know of information for people just to look at even pollution from like farms um, oh yeah that, that's a major issue maybe uh, even superfund sites as well i think in other words it <laughs> probably seems a little impossible to find a, a gem of a location in the united states but i'm sure there's got to be places where pollution is minimal. And I think that's, that's something that we don't really talk about when we think about where we're going to live. Um, right. I think that's extremely important these days for people's health um, and for the health of their children. Just being really knowledgeable on where you're going to live and, and what has been going on in that area. What's going on in the water? You know, what's going on nearby? Right, but I think the thing with that is that if you find an area that would be considered clean and and an optimal living area would that not convince more people to move to the area and eventually they start building in that area <laughs> i know it's like you know you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't if everyone finds that one crystal clear area then eventually that area is going to go bad right that's just the fact of life so you do the best that you can do i guess you could say <laughs> right. with what we got I just wanted to say that when I found out that my depression strongly correlated with sick buildings, I realized that I could use it, my sense of depression, like a Geiger counter as a way to find good locations or bad locations. And over time, as I found out the correlation was so strong that it was extremely reliable, I came to think of depression not as a disease, but as a warning system. It's like the sixth sense nature's way of telling you to get the hell out. So I actually put that in the uh, British Medical Journal. They accepted a, a letter from me saying that depression is the sixth sense. If you feel strangely depressed in a certain building, strongly consider that it's some kind of environmental exposure and not just there's a bunch of nasty people working in there. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting uh, concept, yeah. I don't know. I've, I've never really, I think I've always kind of been in cleaner buildings, but I imagine that would be an interesting sixth sense to have for sure. Those of us who have become what we call hypersensitized by our toxic mold exposures have a few of these radar alarm symptoms. Oh. And I'm not sure which one kicks in first, but depression is one or two on the list. I had two questions for you, Dr. Dickerson. Okay. 
I'm interested in, in an introduction with our team to the person that you referenced who was interested in algae blooms. Okay. That might, be a, that might be a really great conversation that we could have and a good person for our team to connect to. That's something that we're also interested in. Mm -hmm. And then just to full circle to what we began talking about in the interview, if I understood correctly, it sounded like a toxin, like we'll use lead, for example, can have so many diverse health effects that it gets confusing trying to narrow down exa the exact mechanism. Is what right. And then I also heard a conversion to looking at everything instead of specific things and seeing that through to the end. And I'm wondering, wouldn't you think that that would confuse the picture even more? Because if one toxin can be so confusing in how it interacts with the body that it's difficult to nail the exact mechanism, isn't the picture so much more blurry looking at multiple toxins probably doing multiple things at, at the same time in multiple areas of the body. I think it could be confusing, but what I specifically do, well, what I've been doing is looking at multiple toxins in one outcome at a time. So let's say I look at uh, multiple toxins and uh, intellectual disability. And if I look at those multiple toxins, I can use, and I won't go too much into the details, but I can use different statistical uh, modeling methodologies to determine out of all of those exposures, which one has the greatest impact. And the reason that I'm doing that is that when I go to politicians and I'm saying, you need to get rid of something, their usual, usual response is, well, which, which one is easiest or which one is most important? And if I can pinpoint which one I think they should pump their money into, knowing that they're not going to pump their money into everything. But if I can pick one thing that I just need to keep keep banging out and keep pointing out to them, then that's the reason I'm doing it. So I'm primarily looking at everything with the intention of finding the one or two top priorities and using those to make policy changes. Do you see that the toxins from mold get on, get on your radar at all in, in this way? Uh, well, I'm looking at housing quality, and I'm assuming that as part of housing quality, I would bring in more a little bit of information on mold. It would be more of a proxy. But I talked a little bit earlier about the environmental influences of child health outcomes. That's the data that I'm using for this particular study. Um, and I can look and see if they have information on mold exposures. I'm sure some of the cohorts in there do. Um, but I'm not sure how many or how many subjects they have that information on. Well, if you ever are interested in approaching politicians about the damaging health effects of mycotoxins, we would love to be of support in any way that we can because that has been something that has severely affected all of our health and basically rendered us walking mold alarms, as Eric described. And so, you know, in yeah, my mind, sure. I really wonder 
you know, in these schools that are older and not well climate controlled and mold builds up in the HVAC or a leak isn't properly addressed, like how many of these kids that are diagnosed with ADD or ADHD or have difficulty focusing, how many of them are just neurologically affected by inhaling poisons that, you know, really no one has researched? And so, you know, those are things that we think about a lot and, and see a lot of people suffering with. So we very much appreciate your time today and discussing this with us. Thank you, Dr. Dickerson. And thank you all for sharing all of your thoughts. Again, I've heard a, a lot of theories and concepts I had not heard before. And so it gives me something else to think about when I'm moving forward. Fantastic. I know Eric is uh, probably one of the smartest men I know out there, man. He, he He's a wealth of knowledge and he's been through a lot. So... What you can do, I guess, for the closing is just tell our audience where they can find you and find your work or your research or what they can do to donate or support anything that you're working on. Yeah, so uh, I think anybody looking for me, I want the easiest people to find. You just If you Google my name, plenty of pages will come up with my email address. I, it also has a phone number, but it's in my office and we haven't been allowed to go to the office for a while because of COVID. But um, so if you just my email address is a d i c k e one zero at j h u dot e d u. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Aisha underscore Dickerson or on Instagram at Dr. Isha D. Awesome, fantastic! Thank you again for joining us, and thank you everyone for listening today. It was a wonderful conversation with Dr. Dickerson. I believe we we hit all angles of air pollution and COVID and autism. It's great information that we covered today. Thank you again for listening. Please like, share, comment, and subscribe to our channel. We are located on every podcasting network you can find. Also, please. Contribute to our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to keep this podcast rolling. Thank you again, everyone, and we'll see you next time.